coming to you from the great Pacific Northwest in the shadow of Mount St. Helens near the shores of the mighty Columbia River. This is Blood and Popcorn. I am your host, Eric. Man, we are in late September, or as I like to call it, September. So it is game on for the spooky season. Uh, our spirit Halloween opened up a couple weeks ago. And we've already been two or three times, and I'm sure we will probably head back another 10 or 20 when all is said and done, because it is go, go, go. Um, yeah, nothing too impressive that I'm drinking today. No exotic cocktail that I've put together and no gin. I am sticking with a polar lime seltzer uh trying to stay on that path to our health and fitness goals so sticking to it hey so what i wanted to talk about today is uh embracing the new now this is something i have struggled with myself so i wanted to talk about it a bit because i think this is something that probably those of us who grew up in the 80s 90s and probably even the early 2000s a little bit struggle with collectively um so when i was reading fangoria back in the 80s and 90s um i read that magazine cover to cover and i always anxiously awaited the releases of the films they were reporting on and it didn't matter what i'm not just talking about like the latest friday the 13th uh, installment or halloween or elm street i'm talking about everything i'm talking about films like spasms you know the one about the snakes they bite you and your body kind of boils um i'm also talking about films like the fall which would eventually be retitled the mutilator uh the gate dolls scarecrows i mean i craved new content and i could not get enough i wanted to see absolutely everything nowadays with the explosion of streaming services and the desperate need for content on those services it's almost as if there's an overabundance of titles to choose from and let's be honest a lot of it is not very good so and i think this is due to a variety of factors um, first, I think digital cinematography and digital editing has made it so affordable to make a film. There's very little standing in the way of filmmakers from chasing their dreams and making a film. And in a lot of ways, this is great because making a film used to feel impossible pre-digital. I mean, just when you thought about the film stock costs alone, um, it just seemed so out of reach for a lot of people. Now it's definitely within reach for the determined and the passionate filmmaker. But for every film like, you know, say like One Cut of the Dead, which is an absolute indie standout, there are probably 20 terrible films which could have used some obstacles to uh, give the filmmakers time to improve the script and really develop their vision for the film, both visually and thematically. I mean, because visually, a lot of these films are no better than the average Lifetime thriller. And now, let me be clear. <laughs> I absolutely love me some Lifetime thrillers. I mean, it's it's really fun like it's a sunday and you're a little buzz for some day drinking maybe you were doing yard work right and now you're showered you've been you relaxing with a drink and maybe even a little high right and you come across a lifetime movie marathon like the nanny from hell charmed and cheated soccer mom madam i mean it, it, that is just pure entertainment gold in that moment and they're really not too different than the sci-fi saturday night original films that they used to run like two-headed shark things like that 
But the truth is the shooting schedules for these things and their budgets are so tight, they're not spending a lot of time on craft here. And there's not a lot of time spent on camera setups, lighting, and things like that. I mean, these things are run and gun. Like, I, I have friends who have made these films, and so these are the conversations we have had. So nobody's being insulted here. They all they all know, you know, what it's like doing this. And they all know what they're doing. So, But every once in a while, you get one that stands out from a talented filmmaker who finds a way to get it done within those confines. But for the most part, these things are wide shot, medium shot, two shots, close-ups. Let's go to the next the next location. So there's not a lot of dynamic visual storytelling here, but as pure (laughs) cheese, they can be a hoot. So nothing but love for the Lifetime movie and the people who make them, but we all know exactly what they are. They all know exactly what they are and they all, and why they all look the way they do. Okay. Unfortunately, a lot of the original content on streaming services or in your local red box falls into this category. And it makes you long for the days for the bad movies of the 80s and the 90s because at least those films were mostly well made. And I think I've mentioned this before, but Brian Collins, who wrote for Badass Digest, which became, I think, Birth Movies Death or something like that, wrote an article about why the low-budget or B-movies of the 20th century were better bad movies. And it's because they were made by actual filmmakers, right? The cinematographer had to know cinematography. They had to know lenses and film speed and lighting, at least more than just a cursory knowledge and a desire to make a film. The sound person had to know how microphones worked, which mic was best for which shot, sound level, sound editing. The editor had to have a knowledge of their craft. They didn't have computers and AI to fix their flaws. They had to get a lot of experience first, usually by making industrial films or commercials. I mean, they had to do a lot just to get to the point to where they could make their first bad movie, which gave them a higher probability of getting it right when the film was being shot. I mean, that old saying, oh, we'll fix it in post when something goes wrong. Look, not a lot got fixed in post in those days. A lot of it was axed if it was beyond an audio tweak or color timing or a tweak of editing. So those low-budget movies were just better foundationally. And I freely admit, we probably remember them through the prism of nostalgia because a lot of them were discoveries a lot of us found uh, during the home video boom. And the time and place you view a film often has a lot to do with how you feel about it and how you remember it. But that's not the case with all of them because of boutique DVD and Blu-ray companies. We're getting films from that period a lot of people like myself missed. Like The Amazing Mr. No Legs, which is one of my current favorites. Uh, Blood Games, Death Promise. And all of these were on the low-budget spectrum, and they're all far more well-crafted than a lot of the stuff we're seeing today. Now, it can be argued that those are still being viewed through the prism of nostalgia due to the time period they were made. But if all of this technology is so great, right, and 4K is the best thing ever, Why are so many filmmakers doing everything they can to make their films look like they were shot in the 80s? Even using 16mm instead of digital when they're shooting. Seems to me all of this new technology is best used in taking old films and restoring them to where it looks like a brand new 35mm print. And look, I've been a huge manufacturer of the digital age. Um, it definitely made it easier for me to make my short film and um, and the YouTube series I did with the kids and, of course, this podcast. But there is no question in my mind that films just looked better when they were shot on actual film. 
And that's the reason the Dark Knight still looks amazing all these years later and probably still has the best Blu-ray transfer of all time, uh, along with the Hateful Eight, which is just absolutely stunning. So how does this all tie into the topic at hand? Okay. Well, if you're like me, you don't have as much time to watch movies like you used to. You likely have a job. You may have kids, which means soccer games, school events, uh, basically all the things that go with having a family. You have a home that needs to be maintained. It may include yard work if you have a yard. And even if you don't, you still have laundry, dishes, regular cleaning, making dinners, menu planning, shopping. And you may have other responsibilities outside of the home, like taking care of an aging parent. I mean, I have all of these. You know, despite having film projects in various stages of development, I still have a day job, which I enjoy doing. Um, I have a second day job, which is my investing, managing my stock portfolio on a daily basis. I have kids, one of which is still in school. My wife is a school principal who's working 15-hour days, so I have to run the household on top of everything, which means I do all the repairs. I call the repair people when it's out of my depth. I schedule the vet appointments, maintain the house, make all the dinners, do the shopping. I also take care of uh, my aging mother, who fortunately still has to live on her own, but you know, um, her health is declining. So that's me. Um, and amid all of this, I always have to be trying to find time to write and continue to churn out new material. So my representatives can send it out to the town to get even more projects in development. So my time to watch movies is far less than it used to be. And just like yours, and I work in this industry where it's my job to watch movies. So when you do finally get the chance to sit down and breathe and you want to watch a horror film, do you really want to gamble on a non-franchise title when so many turn out to be underwhelming? Not likely. You never want to feel like you wasted your limited time. So you're more likely to throw in something you already know is a good film. Scream, Dawn of the Dead, Nightmare on Elm Street. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Halloween, Halloween 4, even H2O, Evil Dead. I mean, and, you know, you may even want to go for one of your quote-unquote bad films you love, like Pigs or The Devil's Wedding Night, you know, uh, or you may go classic. Crack open your horror, Hammer Horror Films collection and throw in Horror of Dracula or your Universal collection and spin Bride of Frankenstein. The point being here that no matter what you choose, depending on your mood, um, you're more likely to throw in a sure thing than take a risk on wasting your time, which is a limited commodity. It is the cinematic equivalent of the booty call. Okay? But as genre fans, we really should be making an effort to try and watch new films, expand our horizons, and keep the genre vibrant. Just like you should give up that sure thing booty call and start a new relationship with the actual meaning and growth potential. Now, let me be clear. You do not owe a bad film a damn thing. This idea you have to support the genre, even if the film has universally been declared bad, is nonsense. Now, I think you should always give a film a chance because you may like it when others don't. But you do not owe a film or its makers anything. I mean, look, we all know when a film just looks bad, okay? Let's be honest about that. Typically, the best moments of a film make it into the trailer. And if the trailer looks bad, chances are that's as good as it's going to get. So... I mean, have there been instances where the it's been a bad trailer and the movie turned out to be good? Absolutely. Malignant was a recent one. I thought the trailer was terrible, but because of the people behind the film, I gave it a shot anyway, and I absolutely loved it. And that taught me a lesson, actually, because sometimes the plot of a film is so unique 
that the entirety of what the film is about simply cannot be conveyed in a trailer without divulging spoilers, and the film has to be experienced as intended. But the opposite can also be true. A great trailer lures you in, and the movie <laughs> never lives up to the sales pitch. Uh, the best example of that would be the 90s action film Cliffhanger, starring Sylvester Stallone. Just an amazing trailer. I remember seeing that when I was at NATO Show West in Vegas, and this is a, a convention that's thrown on for um, movie theater owners. And they go to Vegas, and they go to these dinners and lunches and breakfasts, and they're hosted by the product, the film industry, and they show you trailers of what's coming up for the year um, that, you know, that they want you to book. And then there's lots of swag and they usually bring in stars like Tom Cruise was there one year when I was there. Um, Robocop was there. So, you know, uh, so everybody just went nuts for the cliffhanger trailer. They were thinking, oh, my gosh, this thing's going to be a huge, huge smash. But it didn't live up to the expectations. <laughs> so, um, it, but it actually does fall into that good bad film territory. I mean, John Lithgow delivers one of the best comic book villain performances ever. It's up there with Raising King. But the film is not the one we were promising the ad material by any any measure. So when we do get time to watch a film, we often reach for the known familiar rather than take a risk on an uncertain new. But I recently realized I was getting too comfortable constantly reaching for the familiar. Now, in my defense, I do have about 2,000 films in my video library, and that does not include television collections. I mean, the point of having your own video store is to use it, right? But I found I was reaching for some of the same films over and over. So I decided to make an effort to watch a new title, um, you know, at least once a week, you know, and two, if I can cram it in, depending on my schedule. And if there's one in the theater, even better. So here are a few newer titles that I have not seen talked about very much on social media, um, which I watched and liked, or maybe you've seen them pop up in your media feeds, but haven't taken a chance on them yet. So I'm going to start off with the 2021 film Seance written and directed by Simon Barrett, who has been involved with the VHS franchise. He wrote the excellent 2011 film, You're Next. And I went into Sands completely blind. I knew nothing about it. And I didn't even know that Simon Barrett was behind it. I knew zero. Started watching it, immediately engaged, and I loved it. So the story here centers on an all-girls boarding school in the winter, which is allegedly haunted and a ghost may be responsible for the death of a student, which was deemed a suicide by authorities. This death turns out to be a f to be fortunate for the main character, Camille, as that opens up a space at the exclusive educational institution. And there's something different about Camille from the from the start, as especially as compared to the other students, that there is just this sense of maturity about her and confidence and worldly strength. And it's obvious, obvious enough to where we know she has a backstory and that it's probably uh, been you know, on the darker side of life. Anyway, she's not buying the ghost story suicide narrative about the girl um, whose room she now occupies. And she starts to go all Nancy Drew on this to figure out what's going on. And the deeper she digs, the more people begin to die. And this thing really came off like an old school 80s or 90s small budget flick. Say like the 1988 film Lady in White or the 1987 film Dead of Winter, where the story execution is the foundation of the film, as are the characters, and it has no need to rely on gore and CGI effects, though there are some really nice images of horror in this thing. So this was one you should check out if you're craving something new. I think you'll enjoy it. 
and you can still find it on Shutter. Uh, the next one is a 2022 film called Watcher. Uh, this one's also available on Shutter. It's only been up for about a month, I think. Again, I knew nothing about this other than the brief synopsis. And this was written uh, by Zach Ford and Chloe Okuno and directed by Chloe Okuno, who is also associated with the VHS franchise, directing a segment in, I believe, it's VHS 94. Now, Watcher is about a young woman who moves to Bucharest from the United States with her husband because he's gotten a job promotion. She's an actress, but has kind of moved on from acting and doesn't quite know what she wants to do yet. So after the move, she's home all the time in a foreign land. So this basic fish out of water scenario. At some point, she notices a stranger who is watching her from the apartment building across across the street, and she begins to suspect he may be a local serial killer who is responsible for a series of murders where the victims are decapitated. And what unfolds here is an engaging, slow burn story in the tradition of Alfred Hitchcock and old school Brian De Palma. The script is really well paced. The cinematography is excellent. And uh, Kuna tells the story visually so well. I mean, just very, very confident. She comes off as a very confident filmmaker. This was a joy to watch. And lead actress Maika Monroe, who was also in the horror hit It Follows, is very good here. Definitely check this one out when you get a chance. Barbarian. This film is in theaters right now. And this is a film written and directed by Zach Kreger. And I believe this is his directorial debut, and you would never know it. So, because like Watcher, it's directed with absolute confidence. Now, it's been said you should go into this film with uh, without knowing anything. Which I did, and uh, I have to say that piece of advice is especially important for the seasoned horror fan. Um, so, because I'm just gonna, so I'm just gonna give you the simple logline: A woman staying in an Airbnb discovers the house she has rented is not what it seems. And that's it. That's all you need to know anymore beyond that. And I know that doesn't sound entirely original because there's been more than you know more than a few um, Airbnb horror you know horror stories. Um, but w- once the seasoned horror fan finds out the plot beyond that, you'll find it kind of familiar, but it's not derivative, but familiar. And it's the execution here that is the selling point. And Craiger does a fantastic job in telling the story, both with the script and visually. Um, if the film has any problems, it's probably with the title. I think the average viewer, uh, I mean, there's just no indication from the title that this is a horror film. Um, in fact, a friend, a friend of mine went to go see this for a matinee, and apparently there was an older couple there, maybe in their 60s or 70s. And when the movie ended, the husband leaned over to his wife and said, I thought this was going to be like a Conan the Barbarian movie. I mean, to their credit, they stuck with it and didn't leave when they got something completely different than, than they expected. But the title you know, may not work. It could be confusing. Um, but at the same time, it's an excellent horror film. And you should really try to see it in the theater. Um, so try to see it on the big screen. It's it's more fun that way. Allegoria. Now, this is a new movie written and directed by Spider One. And I will absolutely confess I had no idea who Spider One was. Um, and I still actually kind of don't. I mean, but apparently he was, you know, one of the first music acts signed by DreamWorks Music. And as it turns out, is the little brother of Rob Zombie. So I had no idea. Um, but Allegoria, which is on Shutter as well, is an anthology film, 
And the premise is that a group of artists' lives become entangled as their obsessions and insecurities manifest into monsters and demons and death. So when I read that log line, I got a little excited and immediately thought, oh, maybe this is going to be a riff on the 1986 Ken Russell film Gothic, which is one of my favorites. Um, but that's not what we get here. Um, it's it's not even close. There are some what-the-fuck what visuals and moments that do kind of tip a toe in those waters, but it does, that's not the direction it's going. Um, it's definitely a small film, and honestly, it feels small, and it's right on the cusp of that aforementioned Lifetime film, but it keeps itself from falling over that cliff and is actually entertaining. Even if it's a little uneven, there are some very good moments here. Okay, now I'm going to drop an older title on you, and yes, I know this is about embracing the new, but I'm going to list this one under New to You, and that is a 1985 Mexican film called Cemetery of Terror, and this film was written and directed by Ruben Galindo Jr. Now, his father was a big-time filmmaker in Mexico, and he did a lot of Mexican crime films, I think some family films, some action. Uh, he did a Santo film. Uh, I'm not sure if he did more than the one, but... Um, I, I know his was the Santo versus the killer from other worlds. And I think it's like a Santo versus space aliens story. But Ruben Galindo Jr. came to the U.S. and went to the UCLA Extension Film Program in L.A. Uh, in the early 80s, which was, of course, during the 80s horror boom. So when he went back to Mexico, he made a family drama as a writer and a producer. And then he did a crime film as a writer and a director. And they did okay, but then he took a turn and dove into making commercial horror films, and he made three in a row. Uh, he made Cemetery of Terror, Don't Panic, and The Grave Robbers. Cemetery of Terror and Grave Robbers are the best of the three, and they actually almost have the same plot. Um, and, um, and none of the two, I like Cemetery of Terror the best. I saw all of these when Vinegar Syndrome released them about a year or so ago. And when prepping for this episode, I noticed Shudder just posted Cemetery Terror and Grave Robbers on the service. Um, they had Don't Panic up there for some time, um, but I think this is the first time these other two have been on there. Um, Cemetery of Terror. So this takes place on Halloween. On Halloween night, um, in which a group of medical students, who are apparently bored, decide to steal the corpse of a serial killer from a local morgue and try to raise him from the dead, inadvertently putting themselves and a group of uh, neighborhood trick-or-treating children in danger. And the American horror influences here are pretty obvious, uh, and that's just fine. In fact, it's shot to look like it's taking place in the U.S., like a lot of those 80s Italian horror films. But this thing is a lot of fun. It's campy, but not so campy that you wince. Um, this is one you may want to add to your Halloween uh, watch list, actually. But it's 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 a lot of fun. So and I do it's and I, I recommend it. It is especially with the cemetery setting. It's done really well. You'll enjoy it. So those are some of the films I think uh, you know you should check out, especially if your time is limited and you've been burned by taking a shot on an unknown title. And it's easy to understand why we often gravitate to the tried and true horror titles that we've all come to know and love. But maybe challenge yourself to try and watch something new at least say once a week and go into it knowing absolutely nothing. I mean, chances are you know if you have no expectations, you you may enjoy it more. And give yourself, you know, something like, okay, I'm going to give it 30 minutes. If I'm not engaged, 
then then I'm out. You know, because that's at least getting you through the first act. Because if you if they haven't done anything with you to, to keep you in Tyson after the first act, then you know then it's probably not going to get get much better. But I mean, who knows? You may find a new classic that will hit your go to list, like Seance. <laughs> 